Yes, well, um, I'm glad to be together. We, uh, we only have a small task ahead of us this morning. We only have the uh, first 10 chapters of the book of uh, Romans, so I'm sure uh, that uh, this will go quick. Um, somebody said when they, uh, I think they were related to me, uh, when they heard the first 10 chapters was my aim, they said, there's no way you could get through the first 10 verses. Um, so we'll see. It's a dream world we live in, right? When I get done, Betsy will pick up the violin and carry us forth. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you should have a handout there. Um, and uh, and uh, online, I think uh, Asher is going to put that for you uh, online so you can uh, get a link to a handout. Let me start there with the first 17 verses um, of the book of Romans. Uh, so Romans chapter 1, it's there on your handout printed for you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all of those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing, I mention you. I always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in, in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you all who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father God, you never had to reveal yourself to us. There's no obligation whatsoever that you have to us as creatures to tell us one thing about yourself. Nothing. Given the way that we treated you, you had every right to turn us away forever in judgment, in derision, to desert us unto the judgment of our sin. But you have turned towards us. You have given us your word, 
It has been handed down for the ages. The apostle Paul wrote these words to the Romans and by your spirit, you have carried them so that they are words to us today. What would this world be like without the book of Romans? Thank you, God, for this letter. Thank you for the truth in it. Thank you that it has turned the world upside down. Thank you that it has turned lives upside down. Thank you. God, let us cherish it this morning. Let us cherish the gift of it this morning. Would your spirit be used to highlight the incredible news that Jesus saves this morning? And so, Father, would this be a worshipful event? Would you, Father, get glory for what you have done? Would the Spirit, would He get glory for giving us this word? And would Jesus Christ, who has brought salvation from heaven by His death and resurrection, would He get glory unto His name? Pray, Father, that if anyone here, certainly some are here, who have not torn down the flag of sin and raised the banner of surrender to Jesus. Let it happen. Oh God, let it happen this morning. We pray for it. Amen. Rand Paul is a junior senator from Kentucky. Um, I honestly don't know much about uh, Senator Paul. I know enough about some of his views to know that I endorse them and enough about others that I wouldn't agree with those. But regardless, um, I find him interesting. Because whether you love him or you hate him, he's probably one of the most consistent senators, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, in terms of his policy views. He's adamant about small government. He rails against government overreach, and he's adamantly opposed to adding to the national debt. And as a result, not also because of his last name being Paul, I needed that this morning, um, he's the perfect example I needed. So I want you to imagine what would happen tomorrow if we found out that Senator Paul had a major policy conversion, what if we found out tomorrow that Senator Paul, his office released, that he is no longer identifying as a Republican, but he's now identifying as a Democrat, that he's written up a new plan to bring about a national health care system for all people and pets, that he wants to have uh, that he wants to have all diets. They have to now be approved for every adult um, by a new department he'd like to create, the Federal Diet Committee. And he would like to see American troops deployed across the globe as well as just have them guard all of our public schools. Well, you would be shocked, right? I mean, there would be countless people wanting to know, can you give me some explanation of how you went from here to here? Something doesn't jive. We need some explanation into this. Well, I think, I hope, that serves as an example of the shock felt across the Jewish community in the early first century when their star young theologian and leader, Saul of Tarsus, became a Christ follower. Paul, formerly known as Saul, had earned what is equivalent to at least two doctorate degrees by his mid-twenties. The man was brilliant. 
He had demonstrated leadership in the work throughout the synagogues there in Jerusalem. He had shown courage in demonstrations against followers of this new way and great boldness in his relentless pursuit of Christian believers, dragging them into prisons, beating them. So when seemingly overnight, Saul of Tarsus, the leading opposition to the Christian movement, became the central voice of the movement and stalwart defender of Christian theology, people were asking, what happened? How do you get from here to here? The book of Romans is not a defense of what of, of Paul's change in thinking, but it's probably as close as we get. Paul penned this letter to the Christians in Rome about 20 years after his conversion, around 56 A.D. It's not his first letter. It's his fifth. He'd written two previous ones, one, uh, two to uh, Corinth and two to Thessalonica. Now, both of these churches were churches that Paul had actually started, but Rome was different. Uh, Paul instead had not started the church at Rome. And in the... Uh, in the letters to Thessalonica, uh, to Thessalonians and uh, Corinthians, in both of those letters, he was focused on a specific problem for that church. But, but here, the letter of Romans has a broader feel to it. And I think Paul uses it to try to answer some of the questions looming in many minds as to how you get from here to here. And in so doing, Paul is going to answer Two questions. One, how is it that sinful man might be made right with God? How is it that sinful man might be made right with God? And then the second question, how is it that God might be right in his ways? You're going to see Paul finds the first one the most important, but he realizes the second one is on people's minds, and so he deals with it. So Paul explains how it is that a person, this is key to Romans, how a person might be made right with God. And after putting forth that answer, he knows that many are going to wonder, well, how is it that God is right to act like this? So then he goes on and deals with that question. I can't help but see a parallel between this and some parenting situations and conversations. A parent... Uh, often will raise an issue to a child. The parent explains how this issue is going to need to be resolved. And then the child responds with questions about the correctness of the parent's actions, typically in the often sung chorus of, but that's not fair, right? Um, well, that is a lot of what's going on in Romans. You might see Romans as Paul explaining the problem of man's sin before God, laying out the great news of the gospel, and then responding to the objection, but that's not fair. So Paul starts with the second of these. He starts with the gospel. We read this in the first 17 verses together. I've said this before. If you want to understand what's going on in Romans, read the first 17 verses 17 times, um, and you will have a lot better understanding. It's an incredible summary of what's going on there. 
So the gospel is there. The gospel is centered around the crucial concept of faith. Faith alone. Look at how this concept drives Paul's opening words. In verse 8. Sorry. Um, uh, first in verse 5. He describes his ministry as to bring about the obedience of faith. That's one. In verse 8. Paul thanks God for the Roman church, namely because of your faith. It's a second reference. In verse 12, he explains his desire to come to them so that they may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. In verse 16, Paul explains he is not ashamed of the good news, the gospel, as it is the power to save all who believe. Well, that's a way of saying everyone who possesses Faith. So that's a fourth reference. In verse 17, he explains that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Finally, the sixth reference, he explains what is promised from the Old Testament where it is already written that the righteous are those who shall live by faith. He's quoting here from the prophet Habakkuk. Six times we see it. So the message is clear. If someone wants to be right with God, they will have faith in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to have faith? There's a lot of ways to explain it. But I want to turn to a picture that you see in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 8, you can also get this in Matthew 8 and Mark 4. We see this story. It's in Luke 8, verse 22. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let's go across the other side of the lake. So they set out, verse 23. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went out and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? So here the disciples are on a boat caught in a major storm. They believe they will perish by their own account. Jesus completely saves them from perishing. He calms the storm. And then he turns to them and he asks them, Hey guys, where's your fisherman experience? Nope. Hey guys, where is your radar when you need it? Nope. Hey guys, surely you have a major storm backup plan. Can I see that? Nope. Hey guys, where is your faith? So what is faith? Whatever it is, it's something that moves you from being at a moment of thinking you're going to perish to being at a moment to let a man sleep. Basically, so long as Jesus is in the boat, faith is that thing that lets you rest that you are okay. That is faith 
It's not a blind trust. It's not just a good feeling. It is complete trust in the person of Jesus to save you from perishing. That's what faith is. So we're going to walk through Romans together. Some key points. The first point I want you to see is that Paul wants us to believe in Romans, this storm is real. This storm is real. A Christian is one. A Christian is one who considers the storm of his sin and hoists the flag of Jesus. He trusts that by claiming Jesus is the owner of his ship, he will be saved. Throughout the rest of Romans, Paul is explaining how faith and faith alone saves. He's also explaining how this is consistent with the work of God across all the ages. A Christian does not ignore the storm, but responds by turning his ship over to Jesus. In the very next verse of chapter 1, we read all the way up to 17. If we go to 18, Paul explains the universal damage, danger of the storm. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. That's the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God, the anger of God is no Joke. It's a storm brewing. And it will ruin every sinner's vessel. Paul explains that many non-Jews, that is Gentiles, have tried to pretend that the storm isn't coming. But he says, he actually says they're delusional. He calls them fools. Consumed by their debased minds is what he says in the latter part of Romans 1. Friends, please, please, do you honestly believe the storm of God's anger over our sin is imminent and it is real? Yeah, we can fault the disciples for their lack of faith, but at least they weren't so foolish as to ignore the storm. They looked at the storm with clear-eyed reality. They were sure they would be doomed. Many in Paul's day, many in our day, ignored the clear reality of the conditions. We are sinners and God is holy and just and he will judge sin. So much of Romans is a loud bursting horn that there is a real and there is a present danger in the storm of God's wrath. The storm is real. And there are no stormproof boats. There are no stormproof boats. While acknowledging the presence of the storm, some may misjudge the strength of the storm or exaggerate the strength of their craft. As such, Paul argues there are no boats that are strong enough to withstand the storm of God's wrath over sin. It's very clear in chapter 3, Paul explains that whether you have a Jewish boat or a non-Jewish boat. Either way, you're not making it through this storm. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we've already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none, it could not be clear, it could not be clear, none is righteous, no, not one. Paul continues the passage there in chapter 3, quoting from the Psalms. So it's not like it's new news. Quoting from the Psalms about the universal nature of sin. And he culminates his argument with verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Folks, that's some shocking news for some Jews reading this from Paul. For as an Orthodox Jew, Paul, prior to his conversion to Christianity, would have certainly acknowledged there was a storm coming. Definitely there's a storm. God's wrath is nothing to play with. An Orthodox Jew believes that. And he would have said that the, the, the storm is coming because of God's anger over sin. However, like other Jews of his day, and like many Jews today, Paul would have believed that he would have been able to withstand the storm by being in a chosen boat. Namely, by being a Jew. By living according to the law. So yes, there's a storm. But given you have a Jewish book operating according to the law, it's going to be okay. You don't need to fear. Now Paul argues very clearly. Everybody has a leaky boat. Both Jews and Gentiles. He goes as far as to say at the end, I mean, there in the middle of Romans chapter 2, verse 9, there will be tribulation and there will be distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. The storm is a real and present danger. There are no privileged vessels. Thirdly, there is only one way to be saved. Faith is the only way to be saved. One can be saved by faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. God declares us right before His eyes, averting the storm of His wrath. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 10, He says in verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. When a sinner hoists the flag of Jesus, claims Jesus owns this ship, he is saved from the storm of God's wrath. There is no distinction in vessel, but there is a change in ownership. That's what saving faith is. It's a, de a declaration that this life, this vessel, now belongs to Jesus. And no vessel belonging to Jesus shall perish. Well, why? And how does that work? 
That's a really good question. Well, Paul explains it in Romans 5, verse 8 and 9. He says, but God chose his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, key here, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's how. Paul explains that Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on a vessel, a human body. And at the request of God, he drove his ship right into the center of the storm of God's wrath. His death on the cross was his willing sacrifice to take on the wrath of God on our behalf. So every single time the storm of God's wrath comes upon a ship flying the flag of Jesus, the storm is directed off of that ship and on to the vessel of the cross. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the punishment for every person who would have faith in Jesus. So faith is not the actual way that we're saved. That was the cross of Christ. Faith is what marks us, connects us to the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Only, Paul says clearly in Romans, only faith can save. But saving faith always beckons a new course. Saving faith always beckons a new course. That is, no vessel simply hoists the flag of Jesus and keeps on going as they were going. This is why I like the analogy of the ship. So when a country's ship is overtaken in battle by another country's ship, the first thing that happens is the flag comes down and the flag of the prevailing country, what? It goes up. It's how you mark the ship. This is ours. It marks the ship that this ship now belongs to the prevailing country. And in so doing, that ship has a new course. That ship has a new mission. And that ship has a new captain. When a person comes to genuine saving faith in Jesus, their ship belongs to Jesus. His mission is their mission. His course is their course, and he will now be the captain of their soul. Paul explains this by first explaining that every person, this is key to understanding what's going on there in the middle chapters of Romans, every person is flying the flag of sinful flesh until Jesus brings down the old flag. Let me say that. That's so key to understanding Romans. Every person is born flying the flag of sinful flesh until Jesus brings down that flag. We all want to believe that we are the captain of our own ship. We own our own lives. But friends, Paul calls that foolish. Every human born under the law of sin sails under the banner of sin. He or she, says Paul, is a slave to sin. Listen to Romans chapter 6. But thanks be to God that you were you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves 
to righteousness. You were a slave to sin. You now are a slave to righteousness. Coming to faith is not simply adding Jesus is one more flag to your ship. No, there's a flag ceremony. And in that flag ceremony, the sinful, the flag of sinful flesh comes down and the flag of Jesus goes up. That's called baptism. And now with new ownership, you got yourself a new captain. Paul says he calls out our captain in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Flesh used to be our captain. But those who live according to the Spirit, got a new flag, got a new captain, live according to the Spirit and set their minds on the things of the Spirit, the new captain. Verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's a way of saying everybody who's got a captain who's the Spirit's got a flag that says Jesus. God the Father owns our ship. God the Son is our flag. And God the Spirit is our new captain. This does not mean that believers will not be tempted or struggle with sin or stumble into sin. Paul acknowledges this reality clearly in Romans 7. Here he says, Paul sees his ship sailing into enemy waters and he's frustrated. His own ship is going into old waters. He's mad. He says in 7.22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I like where the new captain's taking us. But I see my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law that sin of sin that dwells in my members. Who wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Frustrated, Paul wonders, how will he ever be changed? But there in just the verse, he looks up and he sees the flag he sees his new flag. In verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, a believer will steer in the wrong waters. But they have a new captain. And their flag will remain unchanged. A captured ship will have a new course, a new mission, and a new captain. And so as believers, we will have new priorities, new standards, a new mission, and a new leader. So Paul clearly argues that the good news, the gospel, is that believers are saved by faith. He explains this storm is real in a present danger, and you got no special vessels. And then he knows that his fellow Jews, whom he was once a leader, are going to be saying what? But that's not fair. Why did God change things and make it so that vessels are now saved by faith when it used to be that you were saved by being a special vessel, like namely being Jewish? And if having the law doesn't help at all, why did he ever even give us the law? Paul knows that's coming. And he spends parts of Romans 1 through 10 answering that. Faith, Paul says, so he does this, by the way, by saying, you're wrong on both accounts. Neither of the things you assume are right. It is not true that, there, that faith is a new way. It's always been that way. 
And it's not true that the law was useless. It had an incredible benefit. First, faith has always been the means of salvation. Faith has always been the way people are saved. First, Paul argues that faith is the method of salvation, has always been his method of salvation. No change here. Salvation has never come by being in a specific vessel, never by being in a certain family. Salvation has always been through faith in God's mercy. And he does this so brilliantly at the beginning of Romans 4 by using David and Abraham as examples. Listen, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. What does that mean? That means to have faith in God. And it, that is his faith, was counted as righteousness. Now the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who's not work, he believes in him who justifies the godly, the ungodly. That is, he has faith. His faith is counted as righteousness. And then he moves on to David, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David and Abraham were not saved because they were Jews. They were saved because they had faith in the mercy of God. Well, now wait a second. They couldn't really have faith in Jesus. I mean, Jesus wasn't even born. Yeah. But they still flew a flag of faith. And the flag of faith was in God's mercy. However that mercy would come, they believed it. And Jesus was the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of it. So one, people have always been saved by faith. Two, radar, a radar warns, but a radar cannot save. A radar warns, but a radar cannot save. Next, Paul explains the law was never meant to save. The law, things like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt, thou shalt, do this, don't do this. He says, the law was given as a radar of warning and a map to Jesus. Now, just imagine for a second, how absurd would it be for a captain of a ship to see a major hurricane on his radar right there in front of him and claim, I see it, no worries here. We're not in danger at all. Why not, Captain? Because I see it. That's foolishness. The radar cannot deliver you from a storm. It can just watch you run into it. It can only alert you to a storm. The law was never meant to save Jews or anyone from the storm of God's wrath. It was intended to warn them. He says this clearly in Romans 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul explains the law is like a radar showing us the twin conditions of God's holiness and our sin are bringing together an unavoidable, unsurvivable storm. The law is not bad. The law is not inadequate. It was never meant to bring salvation, but sound the alarm that rescue had better come quick. Radars warn. Radars don't save. 
So what are we left with? Battered boats and a common banner. Since the boats that survive will all be leaky, all are going to come into the shore, heaven shore, beaten and battered. No one's going to be boasting about how great his boat was. That's going to be a joke on heaven shore. Check out my ride. Oh, my word. How did you get here in that, right? There's no way. Instead, what's all the boasting going to be about? Look at my flag. Look at all of these flags. It's all the same flag. I don't know how these things made it to the shore, but they got the same flag. He says it like this in 327. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By what kind of law it works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Where's the God of the Jews? Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, yes. Also the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised how? By faith. We all got the same flag. We got some messed up vessels, but we've got the same flag. Paul explains there's nothing unfair or unjust is God alone can choose to have mercy on whomever he will have mercy. Well, how does one learn to fear the storm? How do you waken to the fact you're in a real and present danger? How does one go about tearing down that flag of flesh and replacing it with the flag of faith? It all happens when Jesus, by grace alone, boards your vessel. In chapter 8, he puts it like this. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And in chapter 9, he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whoever he wills. There will be no boasting except in the mercy of God. God alone has been merciful. So as we draw close, I want to acknowledge there's a lot I've left out in summary. I do hope this serves as a reminder of the incredible presentation Paul makes about gospel. And next week, God willing, Brother Mark will give us Romans 11 and help us deal with the question of what are God's final intentions for the Jewish people. I hope you see how Paul's life was forever changed when he saw the real and present danger of the storm of God's wrath and that he was heading right at it. There can be no doubt that Paul replaced his old flag, tore it down, and put up the flag of Jesus. Paul is jealous that we see and believe that handling, handing our lives over to Jesus is the only way to save our ship. So let me ask us to examine our boats. 
Are we ignoring the storm altogether? Just acting like it's really not coming? Are we kidding ourselves about which flag we are really flying? Are we flying the flag that Jesus saves? All the while working our tails off to save this boat? Are we enjoying the amazing peace? And the amazing rest that Paul found in his faith in Jesus. Are you enjoying, are we enjoying the amazing peace, the amazing rest of looking up and seeing the flag? It's supposed to be how we go to bed every night. You don't go to bed, oh man, messed it up again. Uh uh-uh. uh. Go to bed. You say, oh, man, there's another leak. Ah, gracious. That oar is broken again. And you look up and you see the flag of Jesus and you say, but this buddy, this vessel, he's going home. Why? Because Jesus' flag has ransomed your soul. Paul says it like this in Romans 5. Therefore, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him also we have obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering will produce endurance. Endurance, it produces character. Oh, and character produces hope. And hope, oh, it does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's our captain. He's still at the top. He's still leading it all. Who has been given to us. Close us in prayer. I have no words, Father, to say thank you enough for Paul. What you did in his life, it's unreal. Thank you for Romans. That it's laid out like this for us. It's unreal. Thank you. But Father, thank you for Jesus. He's the captain, the Savior. He's our all. He's changed us all. Father, if there's anyone who doesn't believe the storm is coming right now, Save them. Help them believe. Show them this storm is real. Your sin is for real. And God will judge you. Forever ransom them unto the kingdom of Jesus. Change their lives forever. Father, I pray for that now. I pray you would do that. Father, Thank you for your kindness and grace. Not a one of us deserves it. Not one of us. You have been so kind. 
We give you so much credit. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you so much. We pray that we would love it, cherish it, and share it. We ask these things to you, Father, the one who grabs souls. We ask it through the name of Jesus, the one who has taken on the storm. And we pray now that our captain, your spirit, he will lead and guide. Amen.